So talking about being froggy, we're um, talking about frogs today. Lots and lots of frogs. We're going to try and cover all of Exodus chapter 8 today. Instead of reading the whole chapter, we're just going to um, start and go through bit by bit. Just kind of break it up into different plagues. Father, we just yeah, thank you, Lord, for this awesome chapter. Lord, we're going to learn about um, Pharaoh hardening his heart because he he's rebelling, he's refusing to obey your word. And Lord, we pray that we don't harden our hearts by rebelling against you, by by not obeying you and resisting your will in our lives. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's just jump in. So chapter 8, verse 1. This is the, the plague of the, the frogs. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river will bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you, on your people, and on all your servants. That is a lovely picture, isn't it? You're going to sleep and there's frogs jumping all over your face. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. So, as we um, have talked about before, the, the plagues are judgments on the Egyptian gods, and the Egyptians considered frogs to be sacred. Now, why would you worship a frog? Well, they've discovered frog-shaped amulets in recent archaeological digs in the Nile River region. And one of their goddesses was Hek, H-E-Q-T, a fertility goddess whose face was frog-like. And not only did frogs speak of fertility to the Egyptians, but also of productivity, because the frogs ate the insects, which would have destroyed the crops. But what was a blessing to the Egyptians is about to become a burden. That which they honoured would become a horror. That which once pleased them is about to plague them. And that's always the way it is with sin. We're going to find it in this frog plague is a good example of sin. What starts out as fun ends in sadness. The dream turns into a nightmare. You think you are free to do what you want, but end up as a slave to your desires. Later on, when Pharaoh says to Moses, take these frogs away, Moses says to Pharaoh, you can have the honor of saying when the frogs disappear. And, you know, there's frogs in their houses, there's frogs, you know, under their armpits. I don't know where the frogs are. And Pharaoh says, uh, tomorrow. He doesn't say, right now, I'm sick of it. He says, tomorrow. He knows they're a nuisance. He knows they're destroying the land. You know, it's stopping industry. No, no one can work with frogs all around them or cook, trying cooking with frogs jumping in kneading bowls. So he says, tomorrow. And so as a picture of sin, sometimes God asks us to put something away from us and we say, yeah, I know I should do that. But then we say, I'll do it tomorrow. Okay? So let's just talk about sin for a second. If you can look up in your Bibles, 
James chapter 1. I'm just going to read verses 12 to 18. So this is um, the application we get from this particular plague. Blessed is a man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So there's a few crowns that are mentioned in the Bible. Well, this one is a crown of life, and it's talking about enduring temptation. It means overcoming temptation. So the last two words there, just in that verse 12, it says, promise to those who love him. Our ability to overcome temptation is directly in proportion to our love for God. The more we love him, the more we want to serve him. So John 14.21 says, He who has my commands and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal or manifest myself to him. So our obedience as we're walking in grace, not because we have to, but because we want to, and the more we love God, the more we will want to obey God. And so if you want a barometer of your love for God, look at how much you're obeying him. And verse 13 continues in James, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Then it says, verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, verse 18, it says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We're a new type of person. We're a new creation. It says in Ephesians that God prepared good works for us to do. He prepared those works in advance. So that's what it means when it says first fruits of his creatures. The word of truth. Now, God has born us into or adopted us into his family so we can be his children. We can live as his children. If we are not living as his children, then it means we are deceived because it says here in James, verse 16, do not be deceived. My beloved brethren, when does he say this? Well, it's talking about sin. When each one is tempted, when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed, and it goes forth and, and brings forth death. So he says, do not be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above. So Satan will try and deceive you, and you might remember this um, temptation from the Garden of Eden, into thinking that what he, Satan, offers you is good for you, that God is holding something back from you. We need to learn that if God is holding something back from us, then it's not good for us. It's pretty simple, isn't it? If God is holding back something from us, if God says no, or if God says something is wrong, then we need to understand that it's not good for us, even if we don't know why. And like Adam and Eve, we need to make this choice. Will we trust him? Adam and Eve didn't, and look where that got us. So, and it's the same in our life. When we 
don't trust God when we are deceived into thinking that Satan, what Satan offers us is what we need or what we want, then we enter into our own little world of sin, death and suffering. The bottom line is that if we are a Christian and we are in habitual sin, then we have been deceived, we are currently deceived, and we need to accept the truth and start trusting what God says to us in his word. We need to start walking in obedience to God's word. And it's not just habitual sin, but any time we sin, we've been deceived. Okay, So we need the word to reveal the truth to us so we don't get deceived. Okay, Back into Exodus, verse 7. And the magicians did so with their enchantments, or their magic, and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. So just like the blood, they were able to duplicate or copy the miracle of the frogs, but they were unable to eradicate the frogs. All they did, as we said before, was make the situation worse. In verse 8, Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go, that they may sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Accept the honor of saying, When I shall intercede for you, for your servants and for your people, to destroy the frogs from you and your houses, that they may remain in the river only. So basically, ask your God to take the frogs away. Pharaoh begged Moses and Aaron, When do you want this to happen? asked Moses. Well, verse 10 says, And Pharaoh said, Tomorrow. To me, it's just amazing. It's incredible that Pharaoh would say, Tomorrow. It's like saying, as an analogy, you're in a burning house. When do you want to escape? Uh, tomorrow. You're in a car and you're heading down this hill and the brakes are failing. And God says, when do you want the brakes to start working? Uh, tomorrow. We're in a mess. We're in sin. And God says, I want to rescue you from this sin. I'm giving you the power to say no. When do you want to access this power? Uh, tomorrow. <laughs> How silly is that? It's just like, I mean, I do it, okay? I'm, I'm not um, trying to pin anyone here. It's something that we all do as a human nature, okay? And we're going to come back to that point soon. Let's just finish um, this particular plague, and then we'll come back to that point. And he said, end of verse 10, Let it be according to your word, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God, and the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, and from your people. They shall remain in the river only. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which we had brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. So isn't that amazing? In a moment of time, Moses prayed, God answered, and bang, all the frogs that aren't in the Nile are dead. It's the power of God. Verse 14, then they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Oh, smelly frogs, dead, rotting frogs, you know, piles of dead, rotting uh, amphibians. Oh, I just couldn't imagine being around. So even though the frogs were dealt with by the word that was spoken, a stench remained. And this is another reason why these frogs are a good picture of sin. Because you deal with the sin but there's a stench that lingers long after sin has been dealt with. However, it's not so bad because the stench of a dead frog can serve a great purpose. When my kids 
seen me make a mistake and there's an undeniable smell of dead frog in the air, I can challenge them to learn from my mistakes. They can see me repent, they can see me change, and hopefully they can stand on my shoulders, so to speak, and do better when they assume positions of leadership in their families and in their ministries. Verse 15, But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. So Pharaoh here is given a break. He was freed and released from the frogs, yet he did not glorify God and thank him for his mercy. Instead, he hardened his heart. That's what Romans says, doesn't it? They were not thankful. They became reprobate. Reprobate means to turn away from truth. So Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now here's a story that illustrates this hard heart. So a farmer was nailing shingles, that's like wooden tiles, on the peak of his roof when suddenly he lost his footing, sliding down the roof, heading for destruction. He said, Lord, if you're there, save me and I'll give you my life. Just then, as he reached the edge of the roof and was about to plunge to his demise, his belt loop caught on a nail and halted his fall, at which point he looked up to heaven and said, Never mind, Lord, the nail saved me. So, like the farmer, Pharaoh was blind to the goodness of God. And that's what happens when we uh, con- want to continue in sin. We're blind to God's goodness. And the, the unbelieving world is blind to how God, good God is, his, his goodness. It's his goodness that leads us to repentance. And like that story, there's no such thing as coincidence. In the life of a believer, we should not say the word coincidence. We should replace it with God incidents because nothing happens by chance. So let's go back to verse 10 in Exodus. One more night with the frogs. So, no problem, he told me. So I smoke a little weed now and then, or overindulge in the alcohol now and then. I've got tensions rising during the day, problems at home, and if I can just get away and smoke a bit or drink a bit, I can relax. Or, we only drink socially, they say. After all, we don't want to be left out of the office parties and civic functions our jobs require us to attend. Or, I know he's not a Christian, she says. But he's getting there, and I know if I keep dating him, one of these days, he'll come to church with me. Sure, he's a bit froggy right now, but soon he'll turn into a prince. I just know he will. So, one more night with the frogs. How much are we going to compromise? Pharaoh evidently came to the same conclusion. The frogs covering his land were troublesome indeed, but nothing he couldn't live with for one more night. He was saying, yeah, this is terrible, I don't like it, but you know, I can live with it for a little bit longer. Now, there are millions of alcoholics in Australia today, and I guarantee that none of them opened his first beer or poured her first glass of wine and said, today, I'm going to become one of the millions of alcoholics and destroy my own life and the life of those around me. Do you think they did that? Of course not. Or, same with smoking. You know, no one takes her first smoke and says, I can't wait to spend most of my life savings on cigarettes and to die young of lung cancer. I'm looking forward to it. No, of course not. And we say the same thing concerning everything from a questionable relationship to a hot temper, from a prideful heart to gossiping about others, from a propensity to lie to curiosity about pornography. Until suddenly we wake up one day and realize our houses, ovens, beds and kneading troughs are filled with frogs. 
we suddenly realize that what we thought we had under control is not under control anymore. It's hopped out of the riverbed and instead is controlling us. So Pharaoh has come, or came, to the stark realization that the frogs which he once encouraged his people to worship, the frogs that he depended on to keep the insect population at bay were out of control. They've got to go, he insisted. Yet when Moses asked him when, he said, tomorrow. So instead of saying, get them out of here right now, he said, nah, not quite yet. I know they've got to go, but not quite yet. And so there are activities, people, places in our lives about which the Lord says, you thought you had that under control or hemmed in, but now it's hopped its banks and it's taking over. And it might not be something that's actually a sin. It might be, you know, it could be a sport. It could be, you know, your occupation, whatever you're doing. And we say, you're right, Lord, it is. What I'm doing with my computer is out of control. What I'm watching on TV is out of control. How much time I'm spending watching TV is out of control. What I'm reading, where I'm going, the way I'm living is out of control. But when the Lord asks us when we want to be set free, all too often our answer is the same as Pharaoh's, tomorrow. Now the problem by saying tomorrow is that our hearts grow hard. Every time we say tomorrow, our hearts grow just a little bit harder. If Pharaoh had not hardened his heart here, he could have gotten off pretty easy. He would have let the people go and would have been it. Egypt wouldn't have been destroyed. You know, the armies drowned and firstborn killed and, and all the silver and gold being taken from them or given to the Israelites as they left. But no, he didn't. He could have spared his country the unbelievable horror that was coming. Now, the Bible says in Hebrews 4 verse 7, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And Hebrews 11.25, Because although there is pleasure in sin for a season, the end result is always destruction. So what are we going to do concerning the sin that controls and plagues us? Well, there's four things I'm going to uh, suggest to you today. So the first is remember. We need to remember that God says that sin is not bad because it's forbidden, but it's forbidden because it's bad. You understand the difference? God just didn't arbitrarily say, uh, I'm going to choose some things to be wrong, and so I don't do those. No. God looked at everything and said, you know what? These are the things that are going to hurt you, so therefore I'm going to say they're wrong and not let you do them. Does that make sense? So every sin I've ever committed, might commit and will commit, is paid for, washed away completely by Jesus' blood for me on Calvary. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. But on a practical level, while I'm still on this earth, Galatians says that what a man sows, that he shall also reap. Every sin I plant or every sin I carry out carries its own inevitable repercussions and consequences in this life. So to be wise, we want to avoid anything that will hurt or grieve, firstly God, others around us, and finally ourselves. We can never sin in isolation. Everything we do affects those around us, for good or for bad. Pharaoh's decision to keep the frogs of the night, I don't think his people would have appreciated that. Why have you got these frogs? Well, Pharaoh wanted them one more night. Why can't we cook dinner tonight? Because Pharaoh wanted frogs one more night. A... Now, in the body of Christ, there are many members who have different roles. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. Let's look that one up together. The scriptures say in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. 
or if one member is honoured, all the members rejoice with it. So this means that if one member of the body is sinning, the rest of the body suffers. How? Because it suffers lack. Because if one of the members has a hard heart, if they're sinning, and a heart that refuses to bend to God's will, they can't effectively be used in the body. So the body is, becomes lame or handicapped. Either the mouth can't speak or the legs can't walk or the hands can't help, the ears can't hear, the, the eyes can't see. So if you get the picture, if, if there's sin in the church, then the body doesn't work as it should. And if you just go over to chapter 9, verse 27, this is another reason, another thing to remember, another reason not to sin. Is 1 Corinthians 9.27. It says, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So the ministry that God has for us can be forfeited. On a practical level, many have lost their families because of sin. I know that there's lots of... Um, you know, the young people today, a lot of them have single parent families. Why? Because one of the parents is either on drugs or alcoholic or, or there's been pornography and there's unfaithfulness uh, or there's been anger and violence, pride, people refusing to say sorry. I remember, I think it was at the conference we just went to last holidays, a guy came to the, one of the pastors there and said, would you please marry me and my fiancé? And the guy said, well, I'd like to, to meet your fiancé before I marry you. And he goes, well, before I introduce you, I need to tell you this story. We were married 38 years ago. But we had differences and neither of us apologized. Neither of us would back down. And so we got divorced. And we've been miserable ever since. And just recently... We've realized how stupid that is and we've forgiven each other and we want to remarry and we want to spend the rest of our lives receiving what God has given us in our marriage. So 38 years of pride and hardness of heart. But I love that story because in the end they still came back together. God's grace was there 38 years later working in their hearts so they could forgive each other. And that's kind of what it's like in the church too. We can have that separation, that hardness. So our families are our primary ministry. I don't know if you realize that. I think you, you guys are pretty aware of that. But our families are our primary, most important ministry. My most important ministry is not you guys, it's my family. If I don't look after my family, then I shouldn't be here. If our families are not intact, then as much as it depends on us, remember that little clause, as much as it depends on us, then how can we be trusted to minister in the church family? First Timothy chapter 3, 4 and 5 says, concerning elders and deacons, one who rules his house well, having his children in submission with all reverence, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So when we are in sin, when we're not repenting of our sin, then not only do we lose our ministry in our family, we also lose our ministry in the church so we can become disqualified. And the passage goes on to say in verse 7, 1 Timothy 3, 7, 
Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So another thing to remember is that when we sin, we lose our testimony. Our witness to the world is lost. We lose our credibility. We lose our spiritual authority. We lose their respect. An unbelieving world would not listen to us if we're hypocrites. And as a result, our role as ambassadors to God Almighty is greatly diminished, if not relinquished completely. So, believe me, our families and the world are great at picking those who are real and those who are not. The world knows if you're the real deal or you're just pretending. So, truly, the consequences of sin for the believer, even though it may be forgiven, are many and they are heavy. The effect of sin on those around us is huge, both for those inside the church and for those outside. This is all about remembering. Okay, Remember all the consequences, even of forgiven sin. Now, the next thing is to repent. To repent simply means to change direction. Where you once said, this is okay, you change your mind. You make a U-turn. Instead of justifying, rationalizing, excusing sin, you call it what it is and agree with the Lord that it's got to go right now. Now, three. Reckon. I reckon this is a good point. Perhaps the most potent passage of Scripture regarding sin is Romans 6. I don't know when the last time you guys read Romans 6 is, but it's a fantastic chapter. It tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, not only was the penalty of sin paid for, but the power of sin was broken. Oh, but you don't know how strong my addiction is, you say, perhaps. But I do know this, that the Bible says the power of all sin was dealt a death blow on the cross. Therefore, all that remains is for me to reckon it to be true and to quit saying, my situation is different. I'm too involved, I'm too addicted. Because when you say things like that, what you're actually doing is doubting what the Bible says. You're saying the Bible isn't true. You're saying that what Jesus did on the cross was not enough to set you free. So as believers, we may choose to sin, we may decide to sin, but we never have to sin because the power of Christ resides in us. And he who told us to go away and sin no more, to be holy for he is holy, also gives us a power to carry out his commands. So I'd like to read that passage there, uh, Romans chapter 6, 1 to 14. So if you could open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14, and we'll have a read of that. Because we don't want to be one of these people who ask for the frogs to be around one more day. So Romans chapter 6, we'll just read through to verse 14. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man, flesh, was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. That means rendered inoperative or paralyzed. 
that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, which we did if we're Christians, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, or in the same way, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So I'm just going to put a slide up here. The word reckon is an accounting term. So you've got debits and you've got credits. So if you get a bill, it goes in the debits column, and if you get paid, it goes in the credits column. that good? All right. So let's look at some debits and credits from this passage. The debits column. The old man has been crucified with Christ. The old man has been rendered inoperative or paralyzed. It's done away with. I'm dead to sin. Sin no longer has any power or hold over me. I'm not under law. I'm not condemned or controlled by sin. Therefore, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I've been free from sin. Sin no longer has dominion over me. So all those go in the debits column. Okay, I'm no longer a slave to sin is that last one. Now, in the credits column, we write, But because Christ was raised from the dead, I walk in units of life. I will be in the likeness of his resurrection. I have been raised with Christ. I have a new nature. The life I live, I live to God. I am to use my body as an instrument of righteousness. I live under the freedom of God's grace. So you got the negative and you got the positive. We reckon it to be true. When we reckon our accounts, we balance our accounts. We make sure it all bits okay and it balances so when we do this we need to remember that this is the truth and if we don't reckon it properly our accounts get all messed up and we it's called bad bookkeeping so spiritually sometimes we can do some bad bookkeeping we can twist things around it and forget some of these things we can start thinking like in that example oh you don't know my addiction it's too strong you know god's grace isn't powerful enough to overcome my addiction Really? Well, we need to come back to the books and we need to balance the books. We need to make sure that these truths are in the right columns. Okay? We need to make sure that we're not twisting them, that we're not doubting them. So, as homework, I really enjoyed doing this little thing. Go through Romans 6 and do your own balancing. Balance the books in Romans 6, do your, your, your debits and credits, and uh, don't forget it. Maybe put it in your fridge or something like that. Reckon it to be so. Consider it to be true. The fourth one, the strategies for avoiding sin, is to refuse. This is a very practical one. Just don't go where the frogs are croaking. Just don't go there. You know exactly who the people and the places and the circumstances are that you need to avoid to stay free. Regardless of whether they're the cool crowd or the hot place to be, or it may even seem to be necessary, and we look at Pharaoh and say, oh, he's stupid saying tomorrow. But guess what? We do the same thing. I do the same thing. 
we hear something at church, I hear something, I read something in the Bible, and I, yep, that's right, that's got to go, I've got to change, I need to repent of that, I'll do it tomorrow. And over and over again, we just don't want to give some things up. We're not willing to surrender those things to God. Or we say, oh, Lord, I'll never do that again. But that's what I said last time and the time before and the time before. And this is real for me. I've done this a few times in my past. It's only words and there's no conviction. I know that I'm going to do it again when I say that, when I pray that. You know, in my will, in my in my mind, the battle is lost. I haven't done this. I haven't reconciled my accounts. I haven't put all the the credits in the credit column and the debits in the debit column. And what happens? My heart gets hard and it becomes harder and harder to follow the Lord. So let's go back to Exodus chapter eight, verse sixteen. We can move on to the next plague. This is lice. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so, for Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So, practically speaking, lice would have been the easiest thing to duplicate. They're very small. Maybe you could have picked some off some animals or other people and, you know, here's some lice. You know, you could fake that real easy, but they couldn't. These magicians were under the sovereign control of God. They had their day in the sun, so to speak, and now they're going to disappear from the account. And verse 18, and so there was lice upon man and beast. And somewhere in history tells us that So terrible a curse to the Egyptian nobles consider lice that they shave their bodies every other day to try and get rid of these lice. Then the magicians must have come back into Pharaoh's court sometime later and said, this is a finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. So this is a finger of God. Well, we've seen God's finger right on the tablets of stone. And what did he say? You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus thirty-one eighteen. It was a finger of God that wrote on Belshazzar's wall. You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Daniel 5, 5. And it's a finger of God that wrote in the dust, causing the accusers of the woman taken in adultery to drop the stones they would have otherwise have thrown at her. John 8, 6. So the finger of God either points at you in judgment or calls you to forgiveness and salvation. The choice is yours. Verse 20, And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me, or else. If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. And uh, there's reference to these flies in Psalm 78.45. I'm not going to read it. And it refers to these flies as those which tormented and destroyed the people. Verse 22. And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. So the land of Goshen is where the Israelites lived. 
This is the first plague where there's a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. All these other plagues, like the blood and the, the lice, that was on everybody. But this is the first one where there's a, a separation. And uh, someone once said, this was the first no-fly zone over the land of Goshen. So verse 23, I will make a distinction between my people and your people tomorrow. The sign shall be. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. It would have been terrible. So in this life, in certain areas, there are differences between believers and unbelievers. Okay? As believers, we have freedom from the addiction to alcohol, drugs, and pornography, etc. Also, we can be free from the effects of unforgiveness and bitterness and pride. We can be free from that because we have the power of the Spirit living in us. We can overcome, as Romans 8 says, by the power of the Spirit living in us. Does this mean, however, that I can say that I'll never have cancer, that I'll never have a bad back or heart trouble? No, because certain curses are universal. So, you know, health issues and stuff like that, genetic issues, that's just a universal part of the curse. The first three plagues where the Israelites suffered as well. But there's other things that we don't have to suffer. Those other things we bring upon ourselves when we live like the world. So if the Israelites in the land of Goshen had visited a friend in the land of Egypt, guess what? they would have experienced flies. So verse 25. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God in the land. So remember that Egypt is a picture of the world. Pharaoh was in essence saying, Worship your God, but stay in the world. This is his first offer of compromise. So here's where we start to learn about compromise. Chuck Smith says, Pharaoh, the type of Satan, was offering to Moses the first compromise, as Satan often offers to us, a portion of compromise. Compromise is anything other than a total, full, complete commitment to God. Well, all right, if you insist, go ahead and serve God, but stay in the land. You know, continue to live in the world. Don't change your lifestyle. Just add church to your lifestyle once in a while. Bible study, occasional prayer. You know, a little bit won't hurt. But remain in the land. Don't make a real separation from the world. That's what this compromise is all about. But God said, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Second Corinthians six seventeen to 18 And 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, Satan's first compromise, or Pharaoh's first compromise. Go, serve God, but only in the land. Verse 26, And Moses said, It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. So 
What's this abomination thing? Well, shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. You can see that in Genesis 46, 34. And the sacrifice of lambs would have been so abhorrent or disgusting and dirty to them that they would have stoned the children of Israel. The Egyptians' failure to understand the sacrifice of a lamb is a picture of the world's inability to understand the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who had come to take away their sin. So the Egyptians did not understand why a lamb should be sacrificed. They hated the idea of a lamb being sacrificed. And it's a picture of the world's failure to understand what Jesus did when he died on the cross, the lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world. Verse 28, So Pharaoh said, I will let you go, that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away. Intercede for me. So here again is the next compromise. The first one was stay in the land, stay in the world. Now it says, just don't go very far away. John Corson says, although Pharaoh offered a compromise to Moses, Moses chose to singularly, wholeheartedly follow the Lord. And therein lies a key success in the walk of faith. For the object is not to see how closely we can walk to the world and still call ourselves Christians, but to see how far we can distance ourselves from the world's mentality. So the object is not to see how closely we can walk to the world and still call ourselves Christians, but to see how far we can distance ourselves from the world's mentality. Another quote from Chuck Smith. Okay, you can go, but don't go very far. And so when Satan sees that you're determined to serve the Lord, he offers a second compromise. Okay, if you insist, then go ahead and go. But don't go overboard. Don't go very far. Don't become a fanatic. Don't get carried away with that stuff. So many people become so fanatical of religion, you don't want to do that. Now, you become a fanatic at a basketball or football game, getting dressed up, yelling and moving around, jumping around, but nobody cares. They all cheer and laugh and say, what a great sport, what a fan. All the emotion, all the excitement. But if we ever did anything in church that would simulate what's done at the football stadium, as far as showing excitement or enthusiasm, oh, you're a bunch of fanatics. You can't show excitement or enthusiasm at church. Not let a smile at church. You're all sitting now, you're all smiling. I'm just mucking around. You're not supposed to get excited about God, about the victories that God brings into our life, although they are eternal victories. So that's what it means by don't go very far. Don't get too deeply involved. Don't become a fanatic. We need to learn to to be a fanatic in a good sense of the word. You know, to be throw ourselves all in. Exodus chapter 8, verse 29, continuing on to finish off. Then Moses says, Indeed, I am going out from you, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully any more in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. We've talked about Pharaoh hardening his heart before. How, like the Pharisees, they would not, and then they could not believe. 
So here again we see Pharaoh hardening his heart. What caused his heart to become hard? It's disobedience to God's word. He's disobeying God's command, let my people go. For us as Christians, we need to be reminded that obedience is a demonstration of our love for God. Not to earn his favor because we already have his favor, his grace. We should obey because we want to. That's our motive. And how much we want to is a good measure of how much we love God. John fourteen fifteen says, If you love me, obey my commandments. And if we can just read one scripture together, it's Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. And we'll finish with this, and then we'll take communion. So Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. It says, Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. Now, who is he talking to? Dear brothers and sisters. He's talking to Christians. Okay. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin. We talked about in James. And hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the Lord, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. So that's an awesome summary of what we've been talking about today, of the deception of sin, how sin hardens our hearts. And it brings in one more aspect. We need to encourage each other. We need to warn each other. That's how part of our role in the body is to warn each other and to encourage each other. Be accountable to each other. Being motivated by love. Father, I just uh, thank you for the body that was broken for us and the blood that was shed for us. And Lord, this morning I just want to meditate on having a soft heart, Lord, because if our heart is hard, then we're distanced from you and we can't experience a love relationship with you to this, to a full extent, Lord. Lord, all of us are hard hearts to a certain degree because none of us love you perfectly but Lord it's our desire to have a soft heart towards you Lord search us I pray and Lord as we listen to this song I just pray that you'll help us just to meditate and, and to reflect and to ask if there's anything in our hearts that, that is causing us to be hard any pride any unforgiveness any sin any f- wrong priorities Lord we're putting something ahead of you Lord, I know in my own life there's um, several things you've already convicted me of. And I just pray that you'll, you'll give me the strength to overcome those things and to, to put, to demonstrate my love to you by obeying you in every area of my life, I pray. In Jesus' name. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face shine upon you. Amen.